sharing experiences and sharing stories um, and allowing people in to understand why people react the way that they react or why they may not think the same things as you. If we can work to be more empathetic every single day, I think this whole world will be such a better place for everyone. Hi guys and welcome back to the Rape Active Podcast. We're bringing you insightful conversations to help you live an active and inspired life. So make sure you hit subscribe so that you get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. It would be also so amazing if you could leave a rating and review to help us bring you more episodes in the future. I'm your host, Rachel J, and I'm so excited to welcome my guest to the show today. She is a sports dietitian and a professional rugby player at the Melbourne Rebels. She's also the co-owner over at Tribute Boxing. Welcome to the show, Michaela Welty. Thank you, Rach. Thanks for having me. I feel like it's the common way to say thank you, isn't it, on a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> it's very nice. It's very nice. It's so nice to have you on. And I feel like, you know, we probably haven't really sat down to have a proper chat with each other. So this is going to be really great because you've had such an amazing background and a wealth of experience. So this is going to be really, really great. And obviously, we know each other through Tribute and, uh, you know, the community at Tribute, I feel like is one of the the greatest things about that gym really, because, you know, not all gyms are like that, you know, people come together because we really love boxing, right? So yeah, that's it. That's it. No, you're definitely spot on there. Hit the nail on the head. I think the best thing by far is the community at Tribute. It is definitely a great place to be and, you know, might be biased and everything like that, but Tribute's gotten me through some pretty tough times and um, I'm very thankful for the people involved within within the gym and externally as well. Yeah, I think I think that's one common thing actually that I've spoken to a lot of people is with boxing especially. It is very common that people come to it because they're going through something outside of the gym and so boxing really helps them to to get them through that not only challenges them physically but also mentally as well and that obviously helps them in different areas of life. Now, one of the crazy things that you're doing at the moment, which I think is pretty insane, is running half marathons every day for 60 days. Now, guys, that's 21.1K. And Mick, your pace is insane. Like you've been doing what, like 5, 10 on average? <laughs> yeah, well- I'm actually funny we're talking right now because I I got back from my run this morning about an hour and a half ago and I had wheat bix before going to bed last night. And I'm I am a true wheat bix kid because this morning I ran at a 505 pace. I'm at 31, day 31. So yesterday ticked over halfway. Um and I've just found it's funny, like the last week's been quite a struggle mentally more than anything. This has been a mental challenge, not a physical one. In, in my opinion, yeah. like, yes, it's challenging on the body and everything like that, but more mental than anything else. And I was really struggling this last kind of week going, I'm not even halfway. Like, how am I going to get to this? Exact? Why? Why did I say that I was doing this? Why did you say 60 days? I feel like it was well, pretty insane. <laughs> the, thing, the thing was, like, I, I look back to day 21 and my partner, Richard, goes, Michaela, why didn't you just say you'll do 21 Ks a day for 21 days? Like, it even sounds good. Like, why 60? And the reason it was 60 was because the, the fundraiser that we're doing with Shake It Up Foundation started or I got involved in it 60 days out from the end date and the end date was always going to be October 17th that was the day because it was around the same time as the original Melbourne Marathon date so I was like oh well like it's 60 days to the end it's a round number like 
let's do it kind of thing. Like that, that was literally, there was no, no more thought than that to do 60 days. So yeah, I, I don't know how I've kept up the pace, but I'm, I'm definitely just cruising now. Um, I've gotten into a good routine and it's, it's more mental health focus and for anything else for me like I listen to podcasts I learn when I'm running like two hours a day of of improving my knowledge from you know I'm learning at the moment how to trade futures um I've been doing a little bit of marketing um knowledge and and increasing my capacity to improve tribute um through those podcasts that I'm listening to so yeah it's ticking a lot of boxes boxes it's habit stacking I like to call it (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it, actually. Like, I really look forward to going for runs and going for walks because I'm excited to listen to whatever yeah. podcast or audiobook that I've got in my, you know, playlist. So that's a really great way to look at it as well. Now, one of the things that is is really cool about you is that you've had a really interesting background and quite a diverse kind of experience spanning from more traditional dance, like classical ballet and tap and then to a variety of different sports like cricket, AFL and obviously rugby professionally. So I'm really interested to know what you have experienced in terms of unexpected similarities between these worlds and also the stark differences between these worlds of dance and sport. The stark difference between dancing, particularly for thinking ballet. Um, so I started dancing when I was three um, and I still teach and adjudicate dance competitions to, to this day. I'm 27 now. So I've been in the industry, if you like to call it that, for 24 years. Um, and I think obviously ballet in particular is looked at as, as the, um, the very girly genre, um, the very graceful genre. And the stark difference there is, like, people expect girls to be good at dancing, right? People don't expect girls to be good at rugby, to be good at any contact sport. It could be boxing, it could be rugby, it could be AFL, it could be cricket. Like, I I think I've chosen very what people would assume a male-dominated sport for such a long time, particularly when we were growing up. Like, I think the first time there was a female-only um, football team that I could be a part of or cricket team, I was already in high school. Mm. Um, so it's not that long ago. Like I'm not that old, you know, mm. I only finished school, te- like finished school 10 years ago. Um, so the big stark difference is like people assumed or expected me to do dancing. People didn't assume or expect me to do the sport. And they kind of told me that I couldn't do it, but they mm. never said that to me with, with regards to dancing. Um, which I find really interesting. And, and it's it's one of the reasons I do what I do these days because I'm someone that's really stubborn and always wants to prove people wrong. Um, you know, tell me that I can't do something and I'll show you damn right that I can. Um, that's just the personality. That's just how I've always been. Um, I think similar, no matter what sport you play, whether it is dancing or whether it is, you know, football, for example, Um, It takes a lot of discipline and it does take a lot of hard work. You know, talent only gets you so far. Um, And I've spent a lot of hours at my craft, whether that is dancing. You know, I was completing 30 hours of dancing a week on top of my VCE years. Um, And that goes to the same here now. Like I'm still training, you know, upwards of 20 hours a week between boxing, rugby, um, and just the enjoyment of other training that I do. So Um, There's a lot of similarities between that as well. And I think the other similarity across all sports, whether you, whether they're the arts background or the contact sport background is that you're always going to have naysayers and you're always going to have people that think it's stupid what you're doing. 
Um, and one, that might be because they're very narrow-minded and they don't understand it, or two, it can come from a place of they never got to do it themselves. So, you know, my biggest naysayers um, growing up were actually the older generation, um, and which is funny because you think, you know, people that are older than you and that are, you know, close to you would back you with no matter what you're doing. Um, but a lot of the time, you know, my biggest critiques were family members in generations above me. Um, and I sometimes got the feeling that it was from a place of um, almost jealousy if they never had that freedom as a female mm. in particular, which is really sad. Like I would have hated to have grown up in my grandparents' era where, um, you know, girls were punished for wanting to do what society told them they couldn't. Um, yeah. And they didn't get that freedom. And I think there is a lot of resentment um, particularly in that baby groomer era for our generation. And I am like, at the end of the day, like, I'm not going to get angry at that because you only know what you know and you can only talk on your own experience. Um, and a lot of the time when we don't understand things, we push against them. Um, so, yeah, there is a lot of a, a lot of similarities but a lot of stark differences between them all. But at the end of the day, if, if you want to work hard towards something, it doesn't matter what you're doing, you can achieve what you want to achieve. Yeah. I think that's great too because obviously carrying through, you know, the mentality through with dance, instead of taking it as what people are telling you that you can't do, you've taken that discipline and, and whatnot through to your sport and training that you do now, obviously. And, you know, with dance especially, I think it's a very um, it's a very visual art form, I guess dance is in general. And then there's this component to that that is highly reliant on aesthetics. And it kind of ties in with this whole idea of girls should be able to do that or, or you know, what whatnot. And you've spoken about the impact that that has had on you and your body image. So what was the most challenging thing for you personally being part of that culture when you were younger and being exposed to that kind of those kinds of messages and that kind of pressure what was that like for you I think you know I think back to when I was in my teenage years and they're definitely the most formative years of anyone's life and I think back to the things that have been said about my body um and it wasn't until you know I was getting to my teenage years and I got told that you know I was too curvy to be a commercial dancer um, you know, my, my stomach wasn't flat enough to be a commercial dancer. Um, I wouldn't get on cruise ships or get auditions um, because I had too big a hips and my legs were too thick. And I've always had like quite high muscle mass on my legs from gymnastics and dancing. And I actually attribute, attribute it to dancing um, and everything that I did in my training. Like I've always had solid quads. Um, and so those kind of comments started to affect me, obviously, because... Yeah those comments you do have control over somewhat you know mm. how much body fat I'm holding I have control over um you know how flat my stomach is I have somewhat control over so there is a difference between how those body parts were spoken about and it took me a, a while to realize or, or understand why I cared so much more about the ones about my hips and my legs and my stomach yeah. when really it's it should be water off my back mm. so um, you know, those comments came and it is what it is. I mean, I, I think. How did you deal with it at that time, you know, hearing that? Yeah, and well, at the time I actually, I probably didn't deal with it all that well because I kind of just pushed it aside and, and right. tried not to think about it. And the reason being is I would never go and talk to anyone about that because um, at that same time, my elder sister was suffering with a pretty severe eating disorder. 
um, which which at the time had been going on for uh, five or six years at that point. Um, and she unfortunately was uh, had to be admitted to the Royal Children's at one point. Um, and it took a lot of it, it took a big toll on my parents more than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I still remember back to my year seven year, and I've spoken to my mum about it recently or since. She actually doesn't remember it all that well, but um, you know, it was it was bring parents to school day, and I had gone to a high school, but I had one girl from my primary school who went to my high school with me, and my parents went there for that day um, because they were they were at the hospital with my sister or they were at an appointment with my sister. And, you know, I look back to it now and I'm like, wow, that had a bigger, a more profound impact on me than I, I ever thought. And it's yeah. not until I've reflected now because at the time I, you know, I was a pretty, like, confident kid. I didn't really, nothing really phased me. I was pretty, like, pretty happy within my own skin. Um, I never really tried to impress anyone. Like, if someone didn't like me, they didn't like me. Like, I just didn't. It kind of it was what it was, um, and I was I was really lucky to have a really close friend of mine, Jess, who is still one of my best friends today. Um, kind of take me under her wing, and I spent a lot more time with her family in those years um, because my parents' focus was on my sister, um, which is understandable. Like she went through absolute hell and back, but I think it had more of an impact on my parents than anyone else. Um, so when those comments came at me when I was in year 10 and 11 um, in this particular dance course that I was doing, I didn't want to go and burden my parents with that. Right. So I kept it to myself. Like there wasn't, you know, I had something to compare it to in the sense of, well, it's not as bad as what my sister's going through. Right. So like suck it up kind of thing. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I knew that I wasn't going to go and be a professional dancer after school. Like it was always a hobby for me. You know, I was always told I was good. I competed nationally and things like that. But I was going to go to uni. I wanted to do something in sport. It would always been my dream. So at the same time, because it wasn't my life and wasn't my world, I was kind of like, eh, whatever. Like it is, it is it, what it, it is. you know, it's your opinion. I'm not going to let it impact me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that could be a bit of denial. Um, I've definitely had moments of really low self-esteem and body confidence, like everyone does. Um, you know, it's it's natural. We're our own worst, worst critics, but it's what we do with that and, and how we use that to fuel us towards a positive outcome um, that I think is really important to think about and remember. Yeah, definitely. I think too, you know, that it's such a great attitude to have towards receiving comment. Obviously, you can't control what people say and, and that's a really specific context as well where, it's so it's it's specific to that context. So it's not like it's great that you didn't take it out of there and kind of take it with you into other areas of your life. But just kind of coming back to your sister and you know her developing an eating disorder. So thank you for sharing that because I know that that can be quite a sensitive topic, you know, for a lot of people. And the thing is though, a lot of people have experienced it either personally themselves or knowing somebody who has experienced an eating disorder or some sort of disordered eating. It's, it's so common in Australia. Can you share a little bit more about what was that impact for you like, aside from not feeling like you could really, you didn't want to burden your parents with your stuff, how did that kind of impact you being an observer of what she was doing and witnessing what was going on for her? Uh, I suppose... I have a couple of really vivid memories 
of, of moments in our life where the eating disorder um, was very apparent to me. Um, and I would probably have to admit that in hindsight, I removed myself from the situation as much as possible and, and didn't really have any interest in, in delving into or understanding what my sister was going through at that time. I, I have spoken to my sister about recently um, or previously, and, and that was all consuming for her, which I also understand now being a dietitian and working with people with eating disorders that like, just because it's not important to you doesn't mean it's not important to someone else. And I think mm. you have to be really, really sensitive to people's um, emotions and their own experiences because, you know, what's important to me is never always going to be important to you, but it doesn't mean it's any less valid at that mm. point. Mm. Um, it's actually one of the reasons, well, the, pretty much the only reason I became a dietitian in the beginning was because I saw the impact that it had on my sister's mental health more than anything else. And then also the impact that it had on the family. Um, my parents fought and fought and fought, fought mm. like cat and dog. Um, like it nearly broke their marriage so many times. And I'm glad that I can sit here and say that they've actually now been married 32 years and um, are probably happier than ever. It's kind of gross. They're like in a honeymoon stage again and, <laughs> and stuff. But Amazing like, though. Yeah. Like it, it's, it, it's just, it can tear a family apart. And I wanted to, have an impact on that for other people and help other people understand that it's an eating disorder. It isn't a person. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not, it's really important for people to dissociate themselves from the eating disorder. So when you're talking to someone with disordered eating, it's not their problem. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not you. It's not you causing it. It's not your, it, you know, it is the eating disorder. We like to think of it as an, an external. So, um, you know, a couple of people that I used to work with, we used to call it the monkey. Um, so, you know, is the monkey playing up today? Is he, you know, sitting on your shoulder, clapping your hands, trying to distract you? Um, and if you can dissociate from that and realise that you're so much more than that eating disorder, um, it's a, the first step to really work through that. Yeah, I think that's really important too. And I think with any kind of behaviours that aren't necessarily eating disorders, they could be disordered eating or, or you know, not quite to that degree where you can take that third person stance on it and have that perspective of, looking at it like it's a pattern of behavior almost in a way that you're doing or that happens to be with you but is not you, you know, that's a, I think that's a really important distinction to make there, which is really great. Now, the other thing, you know, kind of tying into this idea about, um, I guess, being a cultural norm, right, fitting into a cultural norm and what, what I suppose society perceives to be girly or, or whatever and it, we probably could break it down into being sort of like feminine masculine energies you know people have both within them it's, it's not to say that one's better than the other um but you know you have spoken about having a lot of pride in not necessarily fitting in you know to the cultural norm of what you perceive to be expected of you or I guess what what is the perception of what a woman should be or can do and so I'm really interested to know you know why that's so important to you and why it's important for other women and girls to know this? Because I know you're quite vocal about this too. So tell me about that. Well, I think at the end of the day, the reason I'm so vocal and I stay true to what I believe is right for me is because it makes me happy. Um, and I understand that happiness is just an emotion. Like I don't really agree with people that are forever trying to live their happiest life because I see happy uh, just as I see angry and just as I see sad and just as I see excited, like they're all fleeting emotions. We're not supposed to be 100% angry all the time. We're not mm. supposed to be 
100% excited. If we were 100% excited every day, we would get fatigued, like, Mm -hmm. because the adrenaline that you get and the endorphin rush that you get from excitement or thrill, like, we're not supposed to live in that state. Like, that's going to do more damage to our health than anything else. Um, and just like trying to aim for hundred percent happiness all the time, you know, if you have a day where you're not hitting that, you actually, um, experience more severe depressive emotions because there's that unrealistic expectation. Mm. So at the end of the day, like I try and find a little bit of happiness in every day, just as I try and find a little bit of calm in every day. And the way that I, I find happiness is being true to what I believe and what makes me feel good. Um, and what makes me feel good is defying my expectations more than anything else. Mm. So I have a lot, I have expectations on myself um, and whether society approves of those or agrees of those, I don't actually care all that much. Mm. You know, I, I'm so grateful that I have a partner that doesn't find me too masculine, that, you know, likes that I like getting rough and mucking around with the guys and have a lot of guy mates, probably more guy mates than I do girl mates because he knows that that's what makes me happy. Like mm. I'm I'm so grateful that I have a sister and parents um, and cousins that think that me getting into the boxing ring is so empowering and motivational and that it's not too dangerous or too boyish or too rough. Like I, I, I'm grateful because I have those people and those networks around me, but in saying that, the friends that I surround myself with, my partner, um, the people that I, I spend day to day with, they see that value as well. And I think that's the most important thing. Like if you're sitting in a room and you're feeling like you're being judged for the choices that you make or, um, you know, you don't want to be the girl that has to always put makeup on and, and do your hair the way society wants you to, if you're feeling judged in that room, you need to leave that room and find a better one. Mm. Because sitting in, you can't you can't expect to change people's opinions, right? Like, no one should expect that they can have a conversation with me and change my opinions about my standards. I'm not talking about politics. I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about, you know, day-to-day conversations. Like that's a different thing. That's a discussion. You know, we can learn things from people. But when we're talking specifically around our morals um, and what we value, no one's really going to sit next to me and be able to change my mind all that easily. And I have to have a lot of respect for you if you did. Mm. Um So why do we try? Like, why as females do we sit in a room where we're judged for things that we want to do and and be okay with that? Like, don't, you know, it's a little bit of tough love. And I did a talk last night um, with a group of girls and, you know, we spoke a little bit about tough love or or self-love or self-care. And it it pisses me off seeing on social media that people see self-care as bubble baths and face masks. Mm, like yes. to me that is the furthest freaking thing from self-care like I hate face masks and bubble baths like I overheat within 30 seconds it's not an enjoyable <laughs> thing to me so like why are we epitomizing that as self-care on social media like oh I'm gonna have a self-care day and we do face masks like it's so superficial like self-care is being disciplined with yourself when you know you need to do something even if you don't want to do it mm. self-care and self-love is going to yourself Michaela get your ass up you're being lazy, you're not just being kind to your body here, you're actually doing more damage than good. Like that to me is the epitome of self-love and we need to be okay with with being a little bit tougher but also being okay with walking away from people that don't um, allow us to be the person we want to be. Like you're never going to be everyone's cup of tea, so why do we even bother to try? Like it Mm. doesn't mean 
you know, it doesn't mean you have to be a complete bitch and not care about people. Like that's also not what I'm saying. Like I'm probably one of the people that will always, like one of my love languages is acts of service. Like I'm always someone that wants to go and help someone, will go out of her way to make someone's day better. Like that's that's the person, that's how I, I show my love. Um, so it's, I'm not saying that I'm this cold, hard bitch that doesn't go and do that kind of stuff and that doesn't give a shit about anyone's opinions. But I don't give a shit about other people's opinions of myself because I'm comfortable and happy with the morals and the standards that I live by because I believe I do a good job of those. And so why can't we sit here and preach that? Like why me sitting here saying that is, is it egotistical? Mm. Like I think there's a big difference between um, having a high ego and being highly confident. Yes. And especially as women as well. I think that's that's the thing because if a man were to sit here and say things like that as a general rule or generalization, oftentimes it's not really seen as anything, you know, nothing out of the ordinary. No. But with women, especially, yes, culturally, you know, in society, those kind of traits are definitely as a generalization viewed in a certain way as more of a, ne- I would say more viewed as a negative trait, yeah, definitely. Um, which is, you know, it's, it's for me, cultural messaging and, and just the constraints that we have in culture is, it's something that we as women have to navigate. It's not something that's explicit either. You know, it's not like people say that out loud or oh, don't mm-hmm. say that because you're going to be seen as blah, blah, blah. No one says that everybody's thinking that and so it's so great that you are one of those women who are true to who you are and also act upon that as well you know because I think it's it's good to see role models like that to to show you know that kind of behavior yeah well I think like the biggest thing for me how I decide between what's egotistical and what's confidence is that being confident in something um, or showing confidence is it's being backed by action. Mm. So I'm not just saying that I'll stand up to my, for myself um, if someone tries to tell me what I'm doing is wrong or not good enough or and, and those actions and me doing what I do day to day and being true to myself, I'm confident. Like I, that's one trait that I am so proud of. Like I am confident in who I am, what I'm doing, where I want to go. Mm. That doesn't make me egotistical. Ego, ego is where you say all of this stuff, but you don't do the actions to back it up. Mm. There's a big difference. And yeah. I think that's where people go wrong. They think, oh, look at her. She's got so much ego. She thinks she's so good. It's like, no, I don't think I'm so good. I'm good at what I do. And therefore I am good. Yeah. Be okay with saying that. Yeah. I think, I think that's a really important point, especially as women. I think it's important to be able to, yeah, say. Say that you feel good about what you're doing, who you are and, and what you're achieving, where you're going and be confident in that and knowing that. Also, like, like you were just saying before, it doesn't really matter what other people think anyways. So you just do you basically, which is amazing. So there was a period of time in your life that you've, I, I, I heard you talk about that you went through this bit of overtraining bubble where you where you were like overtraining for a bit um so I'm curious to know what that looked like for you so what were you actually doing and what were you doing it for what was going through your mind to get you to this point of of doing this kind of little stint of overtraining well it hasn't just been a stint I'll be honest um I still (laughs) I still I'm the first to admit I have 
an obsession with exercise and I still overtrain to this day. Mm. Um, you know, I've had full disclosure, I've had periods of disordered eating myself and I'm meant to be the expert. Mm. So I just, I, I want to say that and I want to be completely transparent about it because it doesn't matter how much knowledge you have around something or you know how good or bad something might be for you. It doesn't make it any any easier um, to to not implement the right things in your life. Um, so I, my, my big period of, of disordered eating, um, happened 2015. So it wasn't that long ago. That's only six years ago. Yeah. So it was about 20, 21 it must've been, or maybe it was just the year before that. Maybe I was 20, maybe 2014. And I, had a big falling out with my um, high school group of girlfriends. And we we, um, we were only a small group of girls. We had five of us, which were super, super, super tight, like the tightest of tight. Um, and the reason we worked so well was because we had other friendship groups outside of us five and we all had our own very different interests. Um, and I had a big falling out where an external girl who wasn't in our close group of five best friends. Um, I went overseas for 12 weeks and she started spreading rumours um, about me that I had said X, Y, and Z about one of the girls and then the next girl. And this rumour meal just kind of grew and grew and grew. And I was overseas and wasn't able to defend myself. So I got back and kind of shit had just hit the fan and I was so lost, so blind. And I'm pretty self-aware. Like I was so blind to what had happened. Like I was like, what is happening? Why is no one responding to me? Why is no one inviting me anywhere? Like what, what is going on? I found out there was another group chat that I wasn't involved in, you know, all those high school situations. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was a really big deal for me because one of the girls there was one of, was my best friend. She still is my best friend. We were inseparable. I was pretty much another sibling in her family. Um, I lost contact with her and that's what hurt the most. Like didn't really like care all that much about the other girls because I didn't like, I loved them to death and I, and I'm still friends with them today. Funnily enough, I was like, I'm so lost for words. I don't know how to deal with this. And unfortunately, a lot of those girls don't like conflict. So they were just avoiding, 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 avoiding. They were like, oh, we just won't reply. It's better than trying to get into an argument kind of thing. Mm. And so at this time, I was racking my brain trying to think, what have I done? And the only way I could distract myself was running. So I started running. And I had not been a runner. Like I had not run further than three kilometres before this continuously. Like that was at cross country for school. So I was not not a runner. And I started running every day um, and I lost. So just to give people context, I'm, I, I sit happily at about 60, 61 kilos. I'm five foot four, so I'm not tall. Um, and I've been kind of that weight for fluctuated in a couple of kilos for the last five years. Um, so that's pretty much my comfortable set point. Um, I got down to 47 kilos. Wow. That's a lot. And it wasn't like I was, it wasn't like I wasn't eating. Um, so I was like at that point, my mum and dad actually didn't understand what was happening. They thought I, uh, you know, they, they couldn't understand it because I would get home and I would be eating more than my dad in the day, but because I was just training so much. And I hadn't, what people don't realize is when we, if we've never dieted before and we've never actually impacted our metabolic rate, um, we, we haven't had metabolic adaptation, you know, we can eat quite a high amount of food. And then as soon as you start into a deficit for the first time, you actually find that you don't have to eat 
so you don't have your deficit does deficit doesn't have to be so big to see weight drop off. Mm. So a lot of the time when someone goes on a diet for the very first time, they'll lose a lot of weight really easily. It's not until you try and diet too much in the future where your body's had this metabolic adaptation, but you haven't reversed out of that and 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 up to calories again that we then try and see that it's harder and harder to lose weight on lower calories. So at that time, like the weight just dropped off of me. Like I was, I'd never been in deficit. Like I would always just eat for hunger. I like always trained. Um, so that weight just dropped. Like that was in within 11 or 12 weeks, I got to 47 kilos. Wow. Like, That's it wasn't until, and I hadn't seen any of these girls and I hadn't spoken to them. And it wasn't until um, my best friend's grandfather passed away um, that I went to the funeral. Everyone's jaws dropped um, mm. because they hadn't seen me. They hadn't seen me in, since I'd been away. Like they hadn't seen me in a long, like three or four months. It wasn't until after that day that Jess reached out um, and obviously was concerned. Um, and we got to have that conversation, that sit down. Um, but it was that was as simple as it was. Like I just had no control. I had no control over something that was really important to me. Um, and I found that control in running. And that's where a lot of these disordered eating and, and, and exercise addictions come from is it's we've got control and that control um, is really important. I think if, I don't know if you know, but there's six human needs um, yes. and variety or certain, certainty, uncertainty are two of them. Um, and they're probably my most two important love and connections. I think we all one. have that. We all have the need. We have these six needs that we all need, all of them. It's just to which are which higher order. on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which are higher on your list. Yeah. So for me, certainty is probably my top two. So that was the certainty that I needed and everything else in my life was fine. Like I didn't unravel anything else. Like I just, I could, I could get there kind of thing. Mm. Um, and yeah, after that, it was kind of like. Did that continue on then? Because did so you. Is, no. Oh, really? So this is the funny thing, right? And this is where I put it down to like, it was a hundred percent me just needing certainty in something. Yeah. I felt like I was in a good place because I had my best friend back. I still had that certainty. I was actually enjoying running. Like I genuinely was enjoying it um, and everything like that. And it wasn't until Christmas and uh, my nan comes back into the conversation. <laughs> um, Good old nan. Yeah, love her, love her, love her. Um, she says to me, get out of the photo. So we're having a family photo. Right, for Christmas. Christmas photo, yes. Christmas family photo. And she goes, Michaela, get out of the photo. I'm not taking a photo with you. My nan my loves Facebook. She posts everything on Facebook. Yeah. Um, and obviously she wanted to put these photos on Facebook and she wouldn't take a photo with me because she wanted to put them on Facebook and she said that I looked disgusting and that she didn't, she didn't want her, her friends to see how, how skinny I was. Oh, my. But she said to me, show it up, straight, show it up. How, is, what was your reaction to that at the time, you know? Well, it's funny because I was like, Look, you, you, you're right. Like I was very self-aware. Like I knew I didn't actually like the way I looked. This is the, the weird part. Like I just, yeah. I, I didn't look strong anymore. I've lost, I've lost all my muscle. Like I just deteriorated down to skin and bones. And like everyone had been told it, telling me like I, di- I didn't look nice at all. Mm. Um, and so I was like, fucking pull your finger out, Michaela. Like what are you doing? Like mm. you, you're right. And that moment was what switched. And then I was like, and then wow. mind you, I went the other way and like got back to where I was in terms of weight pretty quickly and probably 
poorly. Like I ate and drank a lot over that summer. Um, I lived my best life. Like I was drinking every weekend. So I went from one extreme to the other. When you do that to your body, like gastrointestinally, I was having issues. Like I was having IBS symptoms that I'd never had before. Like I was having reactions to dairy. Like I used to live on milk and I went through a period where I had lactose intolerance for a good two years because when your microbiome changes every three weeks really regularly, um, if you avoid a certain food and I was, I wasn't having any dairy, you actually, um, your body forgets how to, um, process it, really. process it and, and, yeah. and, and, and digest it and, and utilize that. And that's where a lot of people that I see in particular, you know, they go these extremes, go on these really extreme diets, um, to get to this crazy weight that they want to get to. Um, and they avoid all these foods that are somewhat inflammatory for the body, but that's important. We need inflammatory foods because it challenges our, um, our guts. We need that challenge. Mm. Um, so, the, you know, they're avoiding gluten, they're avoiding dairy, they're avoiding red meat. Three, yes, inflammatory foods, but important foods in our day-to-day diet. And then they're putting it all back in really, really quickly and going, mm. oh, I've got an intolerance now. I'm allergic. No, you're not allergic. You've just got to a, a short-term intolerance because you've been avoiding it for so long. Yeah. And the worst thing you can do is continue to avoid it. So an intolerance isn't an allergy. So yes. what we can do is actually um, slowly reintroduce uh, all of those things that we're reacting to and mm. eventually rebuild our tolerance. So now I can eat ice cream, drink milk, have cream again because yeah. I, I reversed that and went back to, um, you know, my what my normal was before. But, um, yeah, very bizarre kind of six months of my life, um, very big eye-opener. Um, but in terms of that exercise relationship, I still overtrain today. I get a lot of guilt when I miss a training session. Yes. I was going to ask you about that too because you are, you you know, your personality type, and I think a lot of type A personalities are like this too, where you are a high achiever, overachiever, and a lot of high achievers experience guilt when they aren't being productive or they're not doing something, or they feel like they could be doing something or should be doing something and they're not. So they find it a little bit more difficult to rest and recover and and all of those things. So what's the biggest challenge for you now to manage that? Because this isn't isn't isolated. A lot of people, I think, struggle with this, Um, especially if you love fitness and you love training and also sometimes your body feels okay. So you sort of like, yeah, or your mind is is sort of going, I can do it. I can push through. It's painful or, or whatever it is. Um, I'm just going to keep going. But how do you actually manage that now? So I want to, I'll, I'll start by like changing what I just said. I don't, I don't overtrain because I, I'm, I have a training addiction and I think there's a big difference. The reason there's a big difference, the definition of overtraining is, um, in my opinion, pushing yourself past the point where you're not fueling your training correctly. Mm-hmm. So I don't overtrain in the sense that what I eat and how I fuel myself gets me through that training without a breakdown of my health. Mm-hmm. So um, overtraining I was doing back when I lost all that weight and that was evident from how much weight loss I had. Yes. Right now, I easily maintain my weight and have done for the last four to five years with the amount of training that I do because I have the knowledge to back it with the nutrition side of things. So I wouldn't say that I overtrain. I say that I'm addicted to training right now or okay. have been for a very long time. Um, how, do you, how do you manage your addiction to training? Yeah, so <laughs> it's, it is a challenging one. Like the biggest thing is 
the rest day side of things. Um, yeah. There was days during up to finite where I really should have rested that I just didn't because I thought that that those training training sessions could be the re- the way uh, the difference between winning or losing. Mm. How I deal with it now is that I always schedule rest days. Obviously, at the moment, I'm doing a fundraiser for 60 days, so I'm not getting a rest day. Um, but I, if I don't train because I've scheduled a rest day, I'm fine. Yeah, okay. So I don't know what it is around like It's, it's like a mental... conscious – it's a conscious decision to rest. Correct. So Correct. that's – yes, that's – I mean, that's great too because I think that's really important. One of the things I think – that a lot of us struggle with is actually scheduling a day. If we, you know, especially if you're a fitness professional, it's fine to schedule all your training in because you want to do that. But scheduling a rest day, that's more difficult, I think, sometimes. Yeah, I think I like to think of it now um, as more business. So my training is is somewhat part of my business. Um, and the way the reason I think of it like that is because if I write a to-do list with my work day to day. Um, and I don't tick something off, I feel like I failed, right? But if I don't put an item on my to-do list, which I still have to do, but I still don't tick it off, I don't feel as bad. It's really, it's it's a, it's a, mental a strange thing. thing to understand, but it's yeah. kind of like um, if I say that I'm going to do something and I don't do it, I feel like I've let myself down there. And that's where my standards come into mm-hmm. play. Is like if I'm going to do, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm someone that does it. Like I don't, you know, I'm not someone that goes half-assed at things. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, if I schedule a rest day, I could schedule a whole week off training, which I did after fight night and I was completely fine. Like I had no issue with that because it was something that I planned to do, yeah. but it's the days where like I plan to do something and I don't get it done mm-hmm. or, I, or let my, I feel like I've let myself down. So it's just finding ways where like, I'm not going to say I'm going to be able to cure it. Like I've, I, I actually, I don't actually mind that I have a training addiction. Like I just, for me, I don't think it's the worst addiction to have because it's it's doing positive things for my mental health and my physical health and it's allowing me to achieve goals that I never would have been able to achieve had I not been doing it so I don't have a problem with it like I don't think you know people see as addiction as really really negative thing and and that's that's fine like I also don't disagree with that I think addiction is probably not a very healthy thing overall um but I'm okay with what I'm doing for myself right now um so I just find ways to allow myself to get the rest that I need. And that's by scheduling rest days in. Yeah, that's perfect. So coming to nutrition, obviously being a nutrition professional and obviously a practicing dietitian, I think, you know, it's really interesting to me to hear about what the most common goals are for people that you see and the most common problems that you see people for, because obviously there's a a wide span of clients that you might see. In terms of like the general population or someone who, you know, isn't a fitness professional, not an athlete, not really looking to perform in a certain way, what are the most common goals that you see people coming to you for and what are the most common problems that they're facing in their journey as they're trying to work through the, their, you know, u- nutrition? So um, right now I'm only working as a sports dietitian. So I'll, I'll talk about previous because yes. um, I don't see general population anymore. Previously, it's a given, and I think no, it doesn't surprise anyone that the first, the biggest goal is weight loss. People want to change the number on the scale. The biggest barrier to that, or the biggest issue people have with that, is it's meaningless to them. Yeah. So what I mean by that is, I'm a really big, and I start all my talks when I do um, conferences and things with people, is around this why. So understanding your why. 
Um, and I always put a little disclaimer on the slide when I do these talks that says no surface responses um, are accepted. And what I mean by that is, you know, coming to someone and saying, I want to lose 10 kilos as an example, or I want to get to this dress size, to me is a bit of a, a an airy goal. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because there's no real emotional connection to that for a lot of people. And, and obviously there's always going to be exceptions to the rule. Um, but what I mean by that is if you say I want to get 10 kilos lighter on the scale, well, you could do that today. You could do that in a year's time. You could do that in 10 years' time. And this is where we get into this trap of I'll start again next Monday mm-hmm. um, because there's no real emotional connection to that. There's no real meaning behind that. Um, and you know, if you don't have a real meaning or an understanding as why you want to achieve your goal, it's not going to get you up in the morning. Like if you wake up and your alarm goes off and you know, you've got to get up to get your training session in, you know, you want to have a reason for your goal. That's going to get you out of bed, no matter what. And the way you find that is understanding your why. So it's sitting down and going, why is this goal actually important to me? Like, am I only wanting to lose 10 kilos because someone that I don't really give a shit about told me that I'm too fat mm-hmm. or do I want to lose 10 kilos on the scale because that's what society thinks I should be? Or like, where do these numbers come from? Like I feel, I get, you know, I feel a lot of people come up with these numbers in their head and they're so arbitrary. Like they mean nothing. And a lot of the time I I find when people get to the number that they want to be on the scales, magic number, they actually are no happier or don't feel any more fulfilled than they did when they started. Um, So like the biggest thing for me is, you've got to sit down and understand why you want to achieve that or why you're saying that's your goal before as first and foremost. Mm-hmm. That's probably the most common that people come to me as a dietitian. And what we actually find is I end up doing a lot more work with them around their behaviours um, and understanding their day-to-day things that they do or, or the things that they don't do before I even worry about what they weigh. Because a lot of the time, if you can take the focus off that arbitrary number, um, and you can focus more on those behaviours and, and life, it's all about behaviour, right? 100%. So if we can focus on those behaviours, we actually get to the outcome that they were hoping for. But when we get there, they don't actually that phased about the number. They're actually more proud of themselves for changing those behaviours and making them better um, or healthier behaviours for their day to day. Yeah, it's more about the process of achieving than it is about the actual goal per se. I mean, it's, it's, mm-hmm. and it's great to have that as a signpost or something to aim towards, but really the process of doing every day is, is the part that really needs to shift, really. And perhaps their perception too around, yeah. like you said, the number and what that actually means for them, you know, and, and, and really understanding what the deeper internal motivation is for that. 100%. So what are the other things that you've noticed, especially too, with misconceptions around nutrition? I would say particularly with women as well, misconceptions around nutrition and their bodies. The, you know, people, I know that nutrition is a, a bit of a weird one because I feel like there's a lot of information out there that people kind of get the wind of something and then it becomes kind of Bible, you know, and it's not actually true or maybe more correctly, it's not true for them because it, you know, everybody is so different. So what have you noticed specifically that has been the biggest misconception? Well, I think I've, I first want to start by saying if I had one piece of advice to give to anyone with regards to nutrition, it's do not believe 100% everything that you read. 
So take everything with a grain of salt is probably one of my favourite quotes because even something that's scientifically backed or scientifically researched, you then need to go and delve a little deeper into who's funding that research. Perfect example, you know, there's been quite a few studies out there around the carnivore diet, which is the meat diet. Um, obviously really positive, other things are really negative, but all of the positive ones seem to have one big thing in common. They're funded by the meat industry. Mm-hmm. So when we have an underlying, and, and same with, um, you know, milk being the best source of protein, um, look at who's that funding that. There's been a lot of research done by Nestle. You know, these big corporations have have money in that research um, and therefore there's always going to have some sort of bias. You know, they find what they want to find. So I'm not saying scientific research is untrustworthy 100% of the time. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is um, topics that have been researched by science need to be researched by multiple researchers across multiple stages and having multiple um, years under the belt of research for it to really truly um, be be gospel or be Bible. Um, so in saying that, if you see something online that says scientifically proven, still take it with a grain of salt, in my opinion. And at the same time, you know, identify whether it's it's going to work within your day-to-day because something can be scientifically proven and not be good for you. A perfect example of this is when people talk about good and bad foods. There is no such thing as good and bad foods. Every food is important at some given time. And I'll give you two examples as to why. The first one is if I gave you my meal plans that I give my athletes that do Ironman competitions and I didn't tell you that it was for a competition day and just gave you the piece of paper with a list of foods, you would say to me, without a doubt, that's a diet of someone that's uh, 60 kilos overweight and that doesn't exercise because on that list is Coca-Cola, jelly beans, mashed potatoes, uh, uh, lolly snakes, straight carbohydrate drinks, like what people assume is the most unhealthy stuff. But I'm giving that to professional athletes. And the reason I am is because it provides purpose. At that given time in their training or on their competition day, they need fast-acting carbohydrates. And what that is is lollies. That's flat Coke. So once again, like, in that situation, they are good foods, but are they good foods for someone trying to lose weight that's been eating or he's on the brink of being a type 2 diabetic? No, they're not going to be the good option. Another perfect example of that is if you've got someone that's anaphylactic to nuts, are you going to give them nuts? Is that a good food for them? <laughs> no, it's a freaking bad choice. Like that could kill them. However, nuts aren't unhealthy. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess my biggest advice to start with, and I know that wasn't the question, but I think it's important to say is take everything with a grain of salt and everything in moderation. There's no such thing as good and bad food. Um, I guess second to that would be the fad diet situation. I think that's probably the biggest misconception that people see online is that you're right in saying that you see one thing and people kind of clutch at straws and it's like, oh, I've got to lose weight. That didn't work for me. That's a bad diet. I'm going to go try this one. I'm going to go try this one. Um, and we get into this really en- never-ending cycle of, of zero to 100 and actually end up worse off um, or further away from our goals than when we started. Um, and I guess the biggest thing there is every diet works, but not every diet is sustainable. So what I mean by that is that people think, well, the biggest misconception I see is that only one diet will work for you. So 
you have to be a keto or you have to be a vegan or you have to be high protein or low carb if you want to achieve your goals. It's not the case. The underlying similarity to them all is that they're in a calorie deficit. But the biggest thing more than that is if it's not sustainable in your day-to-day, don't do it. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of people that say, you know, what's your thoughts about intermittent fasting? I was like, well, intermittent fasting is great, but it's also not great. It's great for people that might have really bad IBS because we want to give the gut some rest. It might be great for people that find that they're struggling to stay in a calorie deficit because they the eating period is so big. And it might work for them because it means that they're concentrating their food around a couple of hours and they're only fitting in so much food within that couple of hours. So then they're adherent to that calorie deficit. So I guess find what works for you in your day-to-day. And if it works for you, don't let anyone tell you that it's a good idea or a bad idea or else, unless you've consulted a health professional and it's not good for your health. Um, So, yeah, the biggest misconception for me online is that, you know, slimming products, um, certain diets, and I guess certain meal plans that are endorsed by influencers and things um, are the only way to lose weight or get to your goals. It's just not the case. Yeah. I think that's so important because I've found this too with nutrition clients is understanding your context. You need to yeah. understand what your goals are, where you are going. And the fact that, because I, you know, people do talk about, oh, keto diet is good and this isn't good and this is good and intermittent fasting is good or not good. They all, like you said, can all be good. It just depends on what the purpose you're using it for. And so to really, what you need to do is understand where you're at. And if you need help with that, then see someone, you know, get support around that with a, you know, a a professional or a coach or something like that. But that's a really important point. Now, kind of just coming back to this dieting thing, I just want to touch on this quickly because dieting and, and not dieting, I guess this, this going in and out of dieting, it can work for a short period of time, but like you said, not all of them are sustainable, but can you talk through, cause you touched on this earlier about what happens with your metabolism and how going on diets like this and going in and out of diets and not properly refeeding. So if you're consciously going through some sort of plan that have been thought out. I mean, a lot of fighters go through, you know, cuts and whatnot. And then obviously there's like a refeed period where you need to properly come out of that eating period. But then for general population of people who are wanting to essentially lose weight, talk about the impact on their metabolism when they're not doing that correctly, because it's so easy to go, I'm going to do this six week diet or whatever it is. And then wonder why things don't work for you when you come in and out of these diets. I guess the first thing to talk about is a term called metabolic adaptation. Um, and what that means is let's take a step back and not talk about food right now, but just our day to day. So obviously right now I'm sitting here talking to Rach. I'm very um, big on hand gestures when I talk, like I'm kind of fidgeting a little bit. I've got good energy. I'm not low in energy. And that's all because I've got a decent amount of food in me. I had a good breakfast, you know, that energy starting to hit me kind of thing. What we find with uh, dieting is that when your body starts to get less and less food or we go into what we call a calorie deficit. So what a calorie deficit means is that we're burning more than we're consuming. So we're thinking of a scale, our burning calories are higher than our consuming calories. And how we burn calories is things like exercise, um, it's from our BMR, which is what we call our basal metabolic rate, which means that if you were to lie in bed all day, you'll burn a certain amount of calories to keep your heart pumping, to keep your eyes 
blinking to keep your, um, you know, your circulation, your breathing patterns and everything like that. So that contributes to how much energy we burn, something called the TEF, which is the thermic effect of food. Um, so it takes energy to break down food and metabolise that. And then also our incidental activity. Um, so, you know, me getting up and walking to the kitchen or the bathroom, me sitting here and moving my hands, um, my energy to go and walk to the shops rather than drive the car, that's all incidental activity. Um, and then we've got our planned activity, like I said before, which is obviously a big contributor to um, our output as well. So when we start dieting or before we start dieting, all of those things are working quite easily. We're not really thinking about them. We're incidentally moving quite a lot because we're fueling ourselves with enough energy to do so. But when we go into a calorie deficit and we start dropping our calories lower than what we're outputting, we start to not have as much of that energy going in and therefore our ability to expend the energy reduces as well. So if I am reducing my calories by so much and training really, really hard, the reason that I want to go sit on the couch for the rest of the day or, you know, can't even keep my head up for the afternoon is because I don't have the energy in or the fuel in my body to do so. And so when that gets to such a point that it's impacting my ability to do day-to-day -day things, my body goes to a mode or it down-regulates things like my twitch response. So I'm less likely to fidget. I will start blinking less. My energy levels all, um, will drop so I don't go and do those extra steps to the, the um, supermarket. I actually get in my car because I don't have that energy because our body goes, ooh, um, you know, we're not getting as much fuel. I need to stop moving as much. And how it does that is by reducing the incidental activity and then things like our twitch or how much we're breathing um, or the energy that we have to, to move, you know, from here to the kitchen, for example. Um, and that will kind of continue. Uh, and the, the, the more we go into a calorie deficit, the worse and worse it gets. And that's why, you know, after a hard training session, if you haven't eaten, you feel lightheaded and you want to go lie on the couch. You don't want to go into another training session. Um, so that'll start happening. And then, you know, one thing that we could do there is continue in the calorie deficit and continue in that weight loss period and, and, you know, potentially lose more and more energy, or it pushes our hunger hormones up so much that it forces us and we go and overeat because we're just so famished because we've gone in too much of a calorie deficit. Um, so, you know, we might hit five kilos lower than when we started and then we go, okay, I'm going to stop dieting now um, because I can't do this anymore. It's too hard. And what we find is go, oh, my God, I've got to my goal weight. I can go and eat all of the foods. But what we don't take into account is if our um, metabolic rate is, let's say, at 80% when we started that um, and over time, over the 10 weeks it took to lose the five kilos, our metabolic rate has dropped down to, say, 60%. It doesn't quite work like this, but just as a visual, 60%. We're then sitting at a new baseline of calories um, to lose weight. So our, we've down-regulated, so we actually need to drop our deficit even more to see a difference in that scale weight again. And so the more that we're having to drop our calories to see that decline in the scale weight, the less food we're able to eat. And then what we find is people stop dieting and they go and eat all heaps more. And because they've got a lower baseline now, that's actually a bigger calorie surplus and that's where we see that weight gain happen. So we've brought our baseline down from dieting because we've pushed the calories really, really low. 
but then we haven't taken the time to bring those calories back up to the previous baseline. And as such, we've created this surplus and that's where we see that weight gain. Mm -hmm. So when we start dieting consistently over time, in and out of dieting, in and out of dieting, in and out of dieting, we're actually needing to eat less calories to lose the same amount as weight as we did the first time. However, if we do what we call a reverse diet out of it, sorry, it's the microphone. Um, if we do what we uh, say is called a reverse diet, where we hit where we want to be, we sit at maintenance calories for a bit, knowing that they're a little bit lower. And then each week we try and slowly increase our calorie intake, whether it's by 50 calories or 100, we can slowly actually bring our calories back up to the previous baseline while maintaining that weight. So the goal there is to maintain um, and then once we've done that, if we feel like we want to go and lose, you know, a couple more kilos and get a little bit leaner, we can then do that again. But we're starting back at the top baseline where we have more room to drop rather than starting really, really low where we finished off last time. Yeah. I think that's a really important point because I think that's one piece that maybe people aren't really aware of and why this whole yo-yo dieting thing tends to happen and the results aren't there because, people just think that if you drop here, then okay, I can go back to normal. But obviously there's a process that will work that will help you maintain that lower weight if, if that's the goal for you, you know. But I think that's one thing that's really common. So thank you for breaking that down. One of the things that I really like to talk to my guests about is failure and rejection because it's something that we all experience. So I'm really interested to know what your biggest failure or rejection has been and what have you learned from it? I don't know if you'll consider this a rejection, but I definitely felt rejected in the time. And I think that it's probably been the most influential moment in my life that was being cheated on by my ex-partner. Wow. I don't think it's a failure, but it's definitely a rejection. Mm. Um, so five-year relationship, um, we, we grew like we grew a lot in our relationship. Like we started dating at 18 and a lot changes um, from 18 to kind of 25, in my opinion. That's probably had the biggest impact on me because it's shaped how I react to things now. It has shaped the value I put on myself. It has shaped how I react to other people. And it's given me a really deep understanding that I'm a lot more capable and independent than I ever thought I was. You know, I, I found out by accident and it's just funny because I then had a conversation, obviously I had to tell my parents um, and my mum's first reaction was, oh, it was just a mistake. Like, you know, you're going to give up five years. Um, you know, do you, are you sure? Like, am I, and I was like, I've never been sure of something in my life. I'm like, I don't give a shit that I'm 25 or 24 or however old I was at the time, 23, 23 and a half that I've wasted five years because I hadn't wasted five years. In my mm. opinion, like I had learned a lot and don't get me wrong, like my ex-boyfriend's not a bad person. Like fundamentally he is a great human being. He has the best family, could not speak ill of, like he made a bad choice. Mm. It doesn't make him a bad person. Yeah. And like I get angry about it because I think he did himself injustice in that situation. I don't have an issue that he didn't want to be with me. Mm. I have an issue that he didn't have the balls to do the right thing and walk away when it wasn't serving him. Yeah. I don't understand people 
that, and I never, I don't think I ever will, understand people that stay in a relationship and try and get the best of both words and cheat on their partner when they can simply just be honest and Mm -hmm. say, this isn't right for me. Mm. Like I don't have any issue. If he'd come to me and said this relationship isn't right for me, I would have been like, you know what, I, I'm not going to fall. Like I just, that's completely fine. You are okay with having that opinion. Obviously I would have been upset mm. because I, I loved him. But at the same time, it's like you've done yourself an injustice because at the end of the day, this whole situation is no reflection on me. Mm. This whole situation is a reflection on you and how you dealt with something. So I think in hindsight, like, that has taught me a lot. Um, my mum's reaction to it saying, are you sure you want to throw that away has taught me a lot because I think from that moment I realised that no one is ever going to have your best intentions at heart because it, not even your parents, as harsh as that sounds. Like I love my parents. Like my, I have the best parents in the world. I would not change a thing about them. But my mum's saying that, is that the right thing? Don't you want to give it another go? Like it's a mistake. What about if you don't find another partner? You know, it's five years. She, in that moment, doesn't have my best intentions at heart. As much as she's loved to think She's thinking from her perspective. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so she thinks she has my best intentions. But from my perspective, no, my happiness and my self-worth is a lot more important than whether I've wasted five years or not. Mm. So that that, that was a big eye-opener for me, whereas like, it's as harsh as it sounds, you have to be fully responsible for your life. Like you're you're the only person that's going to make the right decision for you, whether someone else agrees with it or not. And that was a really, really big learning curve for me. And, and it also opened up my eyes to realize that, you know, never take anything for granted. Um, and the, the quote, this too shall pass, has been so prominent in my life since that day because I think when something is good, like I adore my partner now, like we, but I'm also very um, aware when things are really, really good, not to take them for granted because they will pass, like mm. it will change. And on the other hand, when things are really, really bad, don't despair because it may feel like it's the end of the world right now, but it's also going to pass. So mm. it's about finding that balance and and learning and not having hatred for a situation, but realising that failures or rejection is just a step to better your craft or better your understanding of the world or improve your self-worth um, and learn. That's the biggest thing. Like, I, I welcome, I would I would rather be rejected and fail 150 times more than I succeed because the learnings that I have from those moments and the, the experience and the adoration I have for how I react to those moments is worth so much more than a minute of success or instant gratification. Yeah, 100%. It, I mean, the perspective that you have on life, I think, is, is so amazing. To have that perspective to be able to step out of situations like that, that can be, and obviously going through something like that at the time would have been, you know, a lot to take in, but being able to look back on it and not necessarily, you know, like the experience, but to know that there is a lesson in everything that we go through, because we are going to go through challenging times in our life. That's just, that's life. You know, it's not, like you said, it's not all happy there's going to be, you know, times that we have to go through things. So I really love that, yeah, your self-awareness and and how you're able to handle those kinds of situations is really quite amazing. 
The other thing that I'd like to ask you, and this is the final question, if you had an overarching statement to which you try to live your life by, what would that be? I'd probably have to say experience is the gateway drug to empathy. Oh, I like that. So what I what I mean by that, it's not necessarily like how I do things in my day-to-day um, in terms of motivating myself or anything like that. It's more around I think everyone could, can be a little bit more empathetic in their life. Um, and the only way to achieve empathy is to either experience the same thing someone else has experienced or have the have the willingness and the ability to listen to other people's stories. And I think that is the art of podcasting and, you know, social media can be used for such good things. And this is one of them of sharing experiences and sharing stories um, and allowing people in to understand why people react the way that they react or why they may not think the same things as you. If we can work to be more empathetic every single day I think this whole world will be such a bigger place and such a better place for everyone because you know as I said at the beginning of this podcast when we have a lack of understanding our knee-jerk reaction is to shut it down but if we can take a moment to go okay I don't understand this right now I could have that knee-jerk reaction or why don't I have a conversation with someone that can shed light on that experience so maybe I can understand it in a different way and therefore react to it in a different way. But what we have to do first and foremost is be willing to listen, be willing to put aside what we truly think in that situation and listen to someone else's opinion and then move forward from there. Um, So in my day-to-day, like, I, I do try as much as possible to, to have conversations with people, listen to conversations that people have had to understand why I think the way I think and why other people think the way they do and see why there's a discrepancy and then challenge myself to re, rethink my opinions on those topics. Um, yeah, so I think that's probably my biggest guiding factor in terms of what I do in work and, and my education moving forward is... Yeah, experience is the gateway drug to empathy. I love it. I really, really love that. It's so amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Mick. It's been such an amazing chat. We got into some really juicy topics and I think everyone will get a a lot out of listening to this episode. So where can people find you? (laughs) First, first before I say that is thank you for having me, Rach. I think you do an amazing job with this podcast and this is a prime example of that experience to the gateway drug of empathy where we can listen to people's stories um, through this format. So thank you for being such a great host as well. Oh, thank um, you. But people can find me um, at Michaela underscore Welty. Um, so M-I-K-A-E-L-A underscore W-E-L-T-I. Um, or you can follow some of the antics I get up to at the Tribute Boxing account page as well. So that's at Tribute Boxing, guys. So thank you so much for listening, guys. Make sure you screenshot this episode and share it to your IG stories. Tag Michaela, tag at Rach Active, and we'll catch you next time on the Rach Active podcast. Mm -hmm.